Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, uh, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, all right, for the... the the three uh, young ones, if you have your book. The story that we're looking at, right, is under no other name. So you'll see the passage in the top corner, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And uh, it also includes the next page, but most of the sermon will be based on the story on these two pages, okay? Do you see the, the lame man going, whoopee, because he's been healed? All right, <clears throat> uh, we are going through a series on the book of Acts, and uh, the book of Acts, it highlights namely the, the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the early days of the church, and one of the reasons why I wanted us to go through the book of Acts is because I, I guess I look at this year as um, we really need to make like a transition in terms of mindset coming out of the pandemic, and we have to start thinking about mission. Uh, the church exists um, well, first to worship God, but the church is here uh, to be in mission. And uh, I know it's like a mind shift and like it's easy to think about like our lives and within these walls, but that's, uh, that's actually not, um, you know, that's not what the, the church is here for. God has given the church a mission, but that can seem daunting because you think about New York City and it's like, oh, 
uh, a, a small church like ours? How are we going to be in mission? And part of the encouragement from the book of Acts is uh, it's not about us. It's about the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's really being aligned and in tune with what the Spirit of God is doing. So during these initial days of the church, uh, you, you, we saw like a lot of strange things happen, uh, but also a lot of amazing things happen. And one of those amazing things we looked at a few weeks ago was the healing of this lame man. And we're still kind of in that story because last week was Peter's sermon uh, kind of in response to that healing. And today is like the aftermath of like Peter's sermon in terms of what happens to Peter and John. Uh, and essentially what we have is like the first persecution here. I find it pretty interesting that the event that leads to the first persecution is actually a, overall a pretty positive event. Uh, it wasn't anything that hurt somebody or hurt anybody in society, but it was quite the opposite. This lame man who had been lame since birth for 40 years is healed, and his healing causes this big stir. And that healing leads to Peter's teaching and preaching of the resurrection from the dead, and eventually leads to the conversion of about 5,000 men. And not everybody is happy about the events that are taking place, namely the Jewish leaders here. They don't like it. And this passage tells us that these leaders, these religious leaders, they were greatly annoyed because of what Peter and others were teaching. So what they do is they have them arrested and put in custody until the next day. Why? Because I guess it was inconvenient to gather all the leaders in the evening. So they said, let's put these two guys in jail overnight and we'll meet in the next morning. So the next morning they gather before these uh, religious leaders and they begin to question Peter and John. And I think reading from uh, where we are, uh, it's very easy to maybe look at these Jewish leaders as like uh, the bad guys and then look at Peter and John as the good guys. And I'm not saying that's like an inappropriate way to look at it, but rather than doing that, I thought it would be more interesting to actually think about belief and unbelief. Why is it hard for some people or certain people to believe and to kind of make that step to follow Jesus and to become a Christian? Uh, from our vantage point, living in a secular and you know somewhat, I guess, modern society, we might say, well, it's harder to believe in Jesus today because of all of these different things, because uh, people these days don't believe in supernatural things, or you know, there are certain claims that Jesus made that just are not palatable or accepted in our culture and for people today. But then when you read this passage, you begin to realize that maybe some of the reasons why these Jewish leaders didn't believe and actually reacted with uh, uh, harshly towards Peter and John are probably going to be some of the same reasons why modern people would not believe. Generally speaking, one of the reasons why someone may not believe has less to do with the plausibility of those beliefs, but I think it has more to do with how believing in Jesus, uh, the implications of what that means in terms of your life. It could mean you have to completely change your entire paradigm for how you understand your life. I want to ask you a hypothetical question. Uh, <clears throat> when was the last time you had a core central change in your beliefs? And I don't mean peripheral beliefs, like, you know, I believe gluten is bad and I should change my diet. I mean like core central beliefs. These are the kind of beliefs that would completely transform uh, the very framework in which you see and understand the world. These are the kind of beliefs that may have an impact in how you connect to other people in your community. These are the kind of beliefs that may play an important role in terms of shaping or 
maybe even creating a new sense of identity. See, it's not easy to change our core central beliefs because they are so intimately tied to everything else that is important to us, our worldview, our community, and our sense of identity. Uh, I was listening to this podcast episode this week, and it was titled, How to Change Your Mind. And the host of the podcast was saying that this is an incredibly important discussion for days, uh, like for these days, because in our culture, we seem to have lost the art of conversation and persuasion. And it's kind of like, well, if you don't agree with me, you're, you're on the other side, right? And I can't have anything to do with you. And so a lot of the beliefs that people have today, uh, and th of course they're talking about it in the context of political ideology, uh, which is one of the reasons why political discussions can get heated, but people tend to have, right, dug their heels in when it comes to politics. And I think both sides are resigned to the fact like, hey, if you're on the other side, I, I know I can't change your mind, right? And even if you have like a very strong logical argument for what you believe, it's still very hard to change someone's mind. Why? I think the reason why it's so hard is because when you change someone's mind with something that they believe is something very core to their beliefs and understanding, it completely changes the, the paradigm through which they understand the world. Uh, politics is actually probably a new way that people feel like they connect to others in, in community. It's like a distorted way. That's probably, I think, one of the problems with politics. It's too, uh, it's replaced like, um, you know, traditional forms of community. And so people feel connected based on these ideological ties. And then uh, if you change your mind, you may have to give up a core part of your identity. And as open-minded as people claim to be, there's a lot to actually give up, which makes it very hard to change your mind about something or to change your beliefs about something. That is why... I can actually understand why some people would have a hard time becoming a Christian. It might require them to give up a lot. Uh, I mentioned this woman in the past. There's an author named Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's a, it's a well-written book because she was an English professor, so she's very good at the English language. But her story is she was a tenured English professor. She was teaching at Syracuse. These tenured positions, by the way, in academia are incredibly difficult to get. So she's a tenured professor teaching English, teaching postmodern queer theory, deeply ingrained in that community. And then a couple years after meeting some Christians and she started to attend church, uh, she decides to become a Christian. And the way she starts the book, talking about what happened in terms of how she became a Christian. And I remember the imagery she uses. She calls it a train wreck, right? Her life became a train wreck when she decided to become a Christian. The life that she knew was essentially destroyed. And she chose to change her core beliefs and decided to follow Jesus. And because of that, uh, she couldn't, right? Her, her entire academic career was based on a certain kind of ideology and understanding and identity that was gone right? Her entire community life was rooted in a particular community that rejected Christianity. That was gone, right? So her, her life, she was in a relationship that was not uh, condoned um, in the Bible, and she had to end it. That was gone. So her, her entire life was destroyed. So I can understand, and it's not uh, just somebody like her, but you could say the same about a Muslim, you could say the same about a, a Hindu person. You go to some of these other countries where these uh, beliefs are so intense and so core to uh, who you are and to the communities that you're tied to. You decide to become a Christian. Uh, there's a lot to give up to change your beliefs. Likewise, 
you look at these Jewish leaders, and I think they find themselves in a similar situation. You know, sometimes religious beliefs are the most difficult to change because there's like, I think, an additional layer of intensity when it comes to things like community and identity. And I would say it's even more difficult if you're a leader in one of these religious communities. So when these Jewish leaders, they see the stir that is caused around Jesus' disciples, they of course take notice and they say, whoa, what's going on? Especially because uh, Peter and John are probably initially right, preaching to other Jewish people and these people are now um, following Jesus. So uh, <clears throat> now, I, I say Jewish leaders, but you also have to understand these Jewish leaders, they were not a monolithic group. Uh, just because they were all Jewish doesn't necessarily mean they were united in the same beliefs. Not all Jewish people shared the same beliefs. So you have the Pharisees, you had the Essenes, you have the Sadducees. Uh, they had different beliefs. The Pharisees, they were teachers. They, they believed in miracles. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in a future resurrection. But Sadducees were very different. They were like the affluent aristocratic arm of Judaism. They were the very secular people. They didn't believe in supernatural things like the resurrection. Uh, if you want to remember what Sadducees believes, I remember a professor saying this. Uh, one way you can remember is you can say, it's sad you see that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, right? So uh, but, you know, that always helped me remember like one of the distinct beliefs of the Sadducees. And you have like the captain of the temple, which is kind of basically like military, like the military officer. So you have like these diverse group of Jewish leaders have different beliefs, different uh, classes, right? Different roles, different jobs. They don't necessarily agree with one another, but they are united in their opposition to Jesus. Uh, I remember reading an article by Miroslav Volf. He's this Croatian theologian a long time ago. And uh, he says this. He says, when identity is forged primarily through the negative process of the rejection of beliefs and practices of others, violence seems unavoidable, especially in situations of conflict. We have to push others away from ourselves and keep them at a distance, and we have to close ourselves off from others to keep ourselves pure of their taint. In other words, he says, when you forge an identity based on not what a shared belief but you forge an identity based on what you are against, what you are opposed to, what you reject. Uh, you can't have a, a, a kind of community where you have like meaningful relationships with people you disagree with because according to him, that means like you, uh, you taint the purity of, of yourself. And so your only recourse is rejection, is intolerance, and ultimately the extreme form of violence. And of course, he's experienced this, right? Growing up in a war, war environment in Croatia back in the day. And so his warning is actually to Christians and he's saying, don't forge an identity through the negative process of rejected beliefs. Don't form an identity like in this culture war of like, hey, we're against this and this is who we are because we're all united in our being against this. But what he says is, you know, forge an identity through the positive process of shared beliefs. And then we don't have to be threatened by disagreement and we can forge really a genuinely uh, pluralistic, diverse community where all people are welcome in spite of conflicting beliefs. And it does seem like these days a lot of what unites people is a shared opposition to something rather than a shared belief in something. And if Wolf is right, then it only leads to more violence and intolerance, which I think is what we see in these Jewish leaders. In their shared opposition to Jesus, they resort to using their power and they have Peter and John arrested. Peter and John, they're in jail until the next day. And then they're questioned. The Jewish leaders ask this. They say, by what power or by what name did you 
do this? And here's how Peter responds. Right, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Now, I don't know if you can like, hear it in that past. That's a very bold way to respond, right? Think, think about, I don't know if you've ever been questioned or been like, uh, like in a setting where, uh, I don't know, there's like a bunch of people like looking at you and then you're just kind of being questioned by all, that's a very intimidating setting to be in, be in right? And to answer and to respond in this way, it requires a, a great deal of courage and a great deal of boldness. Peter not only tells them that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man was healed, but then he points out, hey, this is the guy you guys crucified, right? <laughs> you crucified him. And that's like, that's the first offensive thing that he says. He also says another offensive thing. This is found in verse 12. And then he says this, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is probably one of the claims of Christianity that people in our culture would be greatly offended by because it sounds like such a uh, exclusive statement. It, it makes it seem like Christianity is very exclusive. Uh, it means that there are no other roads to salvation except through Jesus. And people in our culture, of course, want to say, well, all roads can lead to salvation, and Jesus maybe is one of those roads, but there are many roads towards salvation. And so if you're a Jewish person, the road of salvation might be through your ethnic identity because you're recipients of the promise, or it might be through obedience to the law. Others might have variations on those principles and say, you know, as long as like, you're a good person and you're kind to people, then you can achieve salvation. But that's not what Peter says here. He says, it's only through Jesus that we are saved. And that statement is offensive to both Jew and Gentile. You see, everybody has, I would say, a metaphorical cornerstone in life. Uh, on a building, uh, the cornerstone is that stone that is foundational to the building, and without the strong cornerstone, the foundations become very shaky. And when the foundations are very shaky, the entire structure becomes very shaky. And everyone has a cornerstone on which they build the structure of their lives on. And I don't know, maybe it can be like personal achievement or what you do through your career. Maybe it can be the accumulation of, of wealth or maybe it can be even a relationship of some kind. Uh, whatever it is, everybody builds their life upon a certain cornerstone. It's where you look for salvation. It's, where, it's what gives you a sense of security, a sense of identity, even a sense of hope. And when this gospel of Jesus is preached, all of us then become confronted with a choice to either reject Jesus and find a different cornerstone or to receive Jesus and reject the cornerstone that we have built our lives on, right? Those are, those are the two choices. And if you've already built your life on another cornerstone, uh, replacing it with Jesus as the cornerstone, again, might mean you have to tear the entire structure of your life down and rebuild it from the ground up. And that can be a scary proposition, which is why I say unbelief can be so attractive initially because it seems much easier just to go with the status quo. You don't have to tear anything down, and it doesn't necessarily get you in trouble. We will get to Paul at some point in the future. I don't know when, but <coughs> he's, he's a prime example of this, of what is at stake for believing in Jesus. 
Peter and John, they get arrested. They experience persecution, more persecution to come in later chapters. Uh, but that's exactly how things went for Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus warned his disciples would happen to them. And so they shouldn't be surprised. The Jewish leaders schemed to have Jesus arrested, demanded that the Roman government have him crucified. So why wouldn't the same thing happen to his disciples, to Peter and John? Yet Peter and John speak with boldness. And it says in verse 13 that these Jewish leaders, they were astonished at the boldness of Peter and John. Now, how can, how can Peter and John be so bold? And Luke tells us uh, before Peter speaks that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In that boldness, he talks about the cornerstone, uh, the very Psalm 118 that we read in the call to worship, right? He's thinking about that psalm, and he's saying, look, this cornerstone, uh, this Jesus that you crucified, uh, you guys rejected him, right? Uh, this cornerstone that you have built your life on, your status as these Jewish leaders, right? You're rejecting Jesus so you can remain on that cornerstone. And Peter so boldly says, Look, you crucified him. You rejected Jesus. But Jesus is the only way to salvation. And when you're confronted with that, again, two choices. Make Jesus a cornerstone, meaning you tear down your old cornerstone, or you hold on to your old cornerstone and reject Jesus. And I think the re holding on to your old cornerstone and rejecting Jesus, that seems like a more comfortable option initially, right? So I can understand why it would be difficult for people not to believe. Now, we're going to talk about boldness a little bit more next week because that's one of the things that the disciples pray for. Um, <clears throat> but all I want to say for now is this. Uh, if the word of God is going to go forth in mission, it does require a degree of boldness from the church. Why? Because when the world's narrative goes against the Christian narrative, uh, it can be very intimidating to give a contrary narrative, all right, that says, hey, what the world believes is not right. Um, people are going to say, oh, you're so arrogant. People are going to say, oh, that's so exclusive, right? Oh, they're going to say all these things. And it takes a lot of boldness to be able to be willing to put yourself out there. Nobody, we don't want to offend people. We don't want people to think that we're weird for having beliefs that we do. And therefore, I think the temptation for us is we're going to be tempted to suppress our beliefs, not cause a stir, because we want to try to fit in. And I'm not saying there aren't times where, you know, we should have an, more of an open ear rather than an open mouth. Of course, there are those times. But what I'm saying is this. If we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, it is going to be hard to suppress what we have seen and experienced. And that's basically what Peter is saying. He says in verse 20 again, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's like, I can't help it, right? I've experienced this. I've been filled with the Spirit. I, I've seen and I've heard uh, the, uh, the crucified Messiah, the resurrected Christ, the ascended Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit and filled us with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and heard these things. I've seen the power, the power to heal, right? I can't help but speak about it and that doesn't come from like a will of like, oh, I need to do the right thing, but it comes from a genuine filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. So the next question is this. Well, how does it happen? How do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think it's a great question. And I don't think there's like a necessarily uh, like a clear black and white answer of like, if we do this, then the Holy Spirit will come and fill us because at the end of the day, we don't have control of what God does and what the Spirit does. But I will say one quick thing about that. In Ephesians 5, Paul commands Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. Grammatically, there's an active and passive element to it. Paul's commanding, says, be filled with the Spirit, but it's a passive voice construction, so it's not something that we do ourselves. 
So that's the paradox. So how do we actively do something that's passive in nature? And one of the things that Paul says is he says, uh, right, be filled with the spirit. And then there's a participle. I don't know. You don't, if you don't know what participle, that's fine. But there's a participle. And he says, singing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. I think there's a logical connection there between being filled with the spirit and singing, <laughs> right? Singing worship being in worship together. Uh, I think when we gather and worship, when we sing songs to the Lord, uh, some of you might be like, oh, why, why do we sing songs? That's kind of like, um, you know, the main, the main point of coming to service is to hear a sermon, which I don't think it is. Um, why, do we, why do we spend so much time singing songs? I think one of the reasons why we want to sing songs to the Lord and sing to one another, that is one of the means through which we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's why worship is integral to mission. Without worship, mission ceases to be this spiritual endeavor, and it ends up to be, uh, you know, a list of best practices of uh, growing an institution. Now, given everything I said about why I can understand why people would choose not to believe in Jesus, the conclusion, of course, isn't like, okay, so, yeah, it's easier not to believe in Jesus, so don't believe in Jesus, right? That's not the conclusion. <laughs> but the question is, if it can be so difficult and so challenging and so if life can become a train wreck for becoming uh, a believer and believing in Jesus, why believe in Jesus, right? Why believe in Jesus? And I think we need an answer for that. We need conviction about that. Going back to Rosaria Butterfield, the English professor from Syracuse, she describes her conversion experience like this. She says, when I became a Christian, I had to change everything. My life, my friends, my writing, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was tenured to a field that I could no longer work in. I was a faculty advisor to all the gay and lesbian and feminist groups on campus. I was writing a book that I no longer believed in. I was flooded with doubt about my new life in Christ. Uh, <clears throat> was I ready to suffer like Christ? Was I willing to be considered stupid by those who didn't know Jesus? Peter, after being beaten for preaching the gospel, rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. Am I ready for that? And uh, one of those Jewish leaders uh, would have similar concerns. A Muslim or a Hindu would have similar concerns. Given all that you would have to endure to follow Jesus and become a Christian, why would someone then decide to believe in Jesus? I think the answer is at least two things, okay? First, uh, Jesus has to become a reality, a personal reality to you. Um, Butterfield recalls an important night where she prays to God, and she writes, That night I prayed and asked God if the gospel message were, was for someone like me too. I viscerally felt the living presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed present and alive. I knew that I was not alone in my room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God, that he would change my heart. And if he was real... And if I was his, I prayed that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. And I would say in that moment, God became real to her. Jesus became real to her. When God encounters you in a way that is real, he ceases to become an idea. Uh, destroying your, your foundations is not worth it just for an idea. Destroying your foundations for a person, that's another thing. It's hard to change your foundations um, just for something, an idea that sounds good. But if you have a meaningful, real encounter with a person who is gracious and merciful and kind, that, friends, is worth shattering the foundations of your life for. The second thing, 
when you realize what God has done and what you have received because of what he has done, you realize that whatever loss you experience does not compare to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And that's something the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. And I, again, I didn't talk about the Apostle Paul, but you think about his life. He had this uh, conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And at that point, right, he was a, you know, he's a high-ranking, high high-level Jewish leader. He was a, he's a Pharisee. And from that point on, he's being chased and uh, threatened by uh, all these people, right? So he gave up a lot uh, to believe in Jesus. Why? He, in his own words, because whatever you lost, it doesn't compare to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. The God that we worship, he is not distant from us. He is not this hardened taskmaster who demands perfection from us, but no, he is gracious and he is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is patient. He is kind. He is good. He is gentle. He's full of both love and power. His love is expressed in that he sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross for you and me, for our sin. He's given us the ultimate source of security in the face of our sin and in the face of death. He's given us a hope that endures even the darkest of times, and he's given us a joy even when our circumstances do not call for it. He's given us his family to belong to through our adoption as sons, and even when we were aliens and sojourners, even when we were his enemies, he loved us. He's given us forgiveness, even when we were undeserving of it. He has given us this great inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He has given us an identity that is not rooted in our work and our achievements or our uh, lineage, but he has given us an identity that is rooted in his work. He's given us a kind of freedom that we have, even if we're in a situation like Peter and John, even if we were in prison, we would still claim that we are free people. Ultimately, what God has given to us, he has given himself to us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, whatever old foundations that we have that we destroy, uh, whatever we lose in life as a result of following Jesus, at the end of the day, it's worth it. Not just for you and me, but for those out in the world. Uh, we may not be in Peter's shoes in terms of his persecution, but we are certainly in his shoes in terms of what we have access to in the person and in the work of Jesus. The church is in mission. Uh, I think that has to be a core conviction that we have <laughs> if the church is going to be in mission. Because otherwise we look at people, it's going to be too hard for some people to become a believer. Uh, like their lives are going to be completely shifted if they become a believer. And... Um, you know, if, we're kinda, if we don't have that deep conviction, we're, we're probably going to say, well, let's not disturb them, right? But at the end of the day, Jesus is either who he says he is or he's not. Salvation is either through him or it's not. And uh, to put it in stuck, such stark uh, contrasting categories, again, I, I know it doesn't sound good in, in our culture in New York, but that's what Peter preaches here. That's what Jesus preached. And uh, that's something that we need conviction of. Um, because that will uh, change our paradigm for how we love others as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the boldness of Peter and um, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes when we live in a place for so long, um, 
you know, inevitably the our surroundings shape us. And you know, I just think about uh, I just think about the ways in which um, you know I personally have seen you know how bold um, certain people can be and how bold uh, missionaries in other contexts are, and uh, the kind of reaction I have in my own heart and. Um, you know, I, I confess that to you because I know that uh, what you desire is, you know, your, your church to be faithful. And sometimes faithfulness means to be bold, uh, bold with the truth of uh, what you say in your word. And I pray, God, that you would uh, form us, you would help us to uh, maybe resist some of the uh, sentiments that are around us. Um, help us to be a people of your word, to stand on your word, to stand on Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. Uh, help us to be a people of conviction. Um, and we know that in order to have that conviction, um, you know, we won't get it by necessarily attaining more knowledge or reading more books, uh, but really we get it because you fill us with your spirit. And so God, um, when it comes down to it, uh, we pray you would fill us with your spirit, and out of that spirit, you would give us conviction and boldness, joy, love, uh, a desire to see, um, you know, the lame healed, uh, a desire to see the power of the resurrection break into this world, a uh, desire to see hearts healed, a uh, desire to see people um, rejoice because uh, they know you desire to see people praising and worshiping because they have been touched by you. Uh, God, I pray that you would give our church this vision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.